Welcome to an attempt at civil discourse. My name is Eden Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Salisbury. In this series of podcasts, we take on difficult and profound topics that apply to us as individuals and societies. We have different takes on many of these subjects, but our goal is to conduct a thoughtful and open-minded discussion to inspire better knowledge and better dialogue. With that, let me welcome Andrew, who will tell us all about today's agenda. Welcome. Today, we're going to talk about capitalism 2.0. What do we do next with the world's economic system? Capitalism has hugely increased the average wealth of a human being on the planet. There's absolutely no doubt about this. It is the predominant economic system, and it has pretty much destroyed all other economic systems in a head-to-head fight. Even communist China used a great deal of free market and capitalism in order to completely change their economic system and to eventually compete and become one of the largest, if not eventually the largest economy in the world. They may still wave the communist flag, but there is very little of the communist system still in place. On the other hand, we are seeing a huge number of unforeseen economic, environmental, and social impacts from what I'll call the original capitalism, the capitalism of Milton Freeman, and the design starting in the 1800s that eventually went, works its way into the 2000s, how our economic model works today. What should the future of capitalism be? Eden, I know you've got a lot of opinions on this. What I'd like to talk about, though, is should our current economic model be changed? So in my view, Andrew, and you mentioned capitalism 2.0 as this kind of concept the way I view it our economic model is this breathing and living organism that changes all the time that happens through both regulations that constantly evolve but even more so through the intricate mesh of individual and institutional behaviors that make up the economy so change is there all the time and The question maybe is what we should change to because we're changing sometimes with no distinctive uh, direction, with no clear objectives. And that's because different factions of society and the economy are pulling in different directions. Um, so I think it's a very valid question to ask what should we really change to? And in order to answer that, I believe that we first need to identify and agree on the problems. People talk about inequality as a problem. Other people don't agree that inequality is, a pro- is really a problem. And we have to remember that people and actors in the economy have this incredible ability to circumvent the changes that uh, disfavor them. They find loopholes. They find workarounds within the existing system, uh, mostly illegal, some of them illegal. So let's start with defining the problems and, 
And uh, this will help us, I think, shape the change that should happen as opposed to just changing so many different random directions that don't necessarily bring a solution or a system that works for the majority of people. Do you agree with that? Well, I completely agree that deciding what we're trying to achieve uh, is important. As you know, if I don't have a mission statement, if I don't know where we're going, I'm very sure we're not going to get there. So that is a complete agreement on my part that we need to define that. And I think we should try to take a shot at that. The reason I like the idea of capitalism 2.0, and this goes back to a software release, you know, that you, we've done lots and lots of incremental changes and little patches and little workarounds and things have happened in the system, none of which was designed for the current speed of the economy, for the impact of the internet and computers and, and everything else that's going on. Uh, in fact, we've got an economic model that's in some ways back to 1750, where they started talking about these ideas. Um, we certainly have not thought about the change in stakeholders. And that's where I'm going to direct our conversation. Um, we, for many, many years, have said the only job of a corporation was shareholder value. And we've done a marvelous job of shareholder value. Uh, by the way, Andrew, that's been around for a number of decades, but that's certainly not Adam Smith's uh, capitalism. I think that came to Wall Street somewhere in the 70s, right? Well, I was, well, you know, as we go back, say, pre-World War II, we had a huge upsurge in labor having some strength and all kinds of groups stepping up and, and basically wanting a slice of the pie. That has changed. It changed because of enormous stress post-Great Depression, um, and both world wars changed all of, the, all of the mix, if you will. But nobody ever said, let's design how it should be. It was often, let's, let's put a bigger bandage on this thing because the patient is still bleeding. And as soon as the patient looks at all revived, everybody's back to how much money can I get? Um, so I think that trying to look at different stakeholders is a great way to start that conversation. Who else should a corporation be responsible to? Um, let me give you an example. Right now, CEOs make a huge amount of money compared to the average worker. Is that a correct approach? Is that, in fact, shareholder value? Or is that merely some sort of captive market where the board members who make those decisions are being held captive because those CEOs are on somebody else's board. And it turns out that everybody's scratching each other's back. Certainly has been no correlation between CEO take home and actual share price. That's in fact been proven to be a negative correlation. So it seems like there are lots of things that we might want to mix in here and how do we go about doing that is a great question. Who, who do you think the corporation should be responsible to? That's a good question. So um, I think the whole issue with executive pay is a little bit of a red herring because while there is a clear distortion, a CEO should not be earning a thousand times the median pay in their company or even a hundred times. 
In the big scheme of things, that doesn't make or break the economy. The effect of that is very, very limited. Um, less than 1% of the revenue of uh, S&P 500 firms goes in the form of executive pay, not only to the CEO, but to the top brass altogether. I think we should put you know, jealousy and such feelings of envy aside. I do agree that we need to ask, is the corporation really designed just to maximize profits? And I would say you could let it work that way if you get all your guardrails in place, because there is nothing wrong with maximizing profits as long as you don't create damage on the way. And lacking the right regulations, which we clearly do, Profit comes at the expense of the environment, the expense of instabilities, at many other costs. So I think we have two options, kind of. Either we make sure that we have the right uh, level playing field, if you will, the right set of rules that ensure that even if companies go only after profit, they are not creating this collateral damage. Or short of that, we could say there need to be other metrics. But if there are other metrics, the question is, how do you make sure that corporations deliver not only on profit, but also on the other metrics? And I think this is a very difficult question to ask because you can very easily fudge the behavior of corporations to so-called fulfill the metrics but do this not with the intended spirit. And before long, you will see that it really didn't serve the purpose. I agree. Um, you know, whether or not the CEO pay should be limited in some fashion, uh, it's not clear to me. I do think that having labor represented on the board, for instance, which would definitely affect that question, right? That if, if labor was sitting on the, the, the board group that decided CEO compensation, that would be a very interesting conversation rather than, you know, if you will, three fat cats and they're all deciding that they should bump up the CEO's pay because that raises their pay, if you will, over over time. I also understand your point of, well, how do you measure these things? What is the what is the right mechanism to do it? We know that if we tie, let's let's use an example and talk about the environment rather than CEO pay because that's that's kind of a loaded thing. You know, with the environment, when we started to hit companies with large fines and, if you will, social disapproval for dumping their sewage into the local stream, all of a sudden companies stopped doing it. So it's very clear that you can affect the behavior of the corporation by hitting them economically. Well, these are the well, rules and regulations that I'm talking. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. But I think that you could expand that and say, you know, okay, you have the same kind of problem, you know, and, and maybe, maybe the answer is to form a new sort of money that there's, there's two kinds of money. There's, you know, gross domestic product that's being produced, but there's also sort of social capital. And that would show the results of other effects within the economy and that that becomes a different marketplace and that there's an, a way to buy and sell and make money, if you will, on the social capital idea. So, so using know, that as a currency, basically? Well, maybe you have two currencies, one that's, you know, this pot of uh, 
general good, if you will. Uh, and I, I don't mean good versus evil, but I mean the, the general good. And the, the other idea being, okay, the, the standard economic model. And it may be when you go to buy something, there's an exchange rate between the two, or there's a way to buy things with social, with social good. And that you need to establish that different number. And I guess I'm kind of thinking that like we've, you and I've talked about for gross domestic product misses the boat in a lot of cases. And that maybe gross uh, happiness index, like they've talked about in, uh, I think it's Bhutan, where they're trying to measure the good of the country. And, you know, for instance, having happy, healthy citizens becomes a useful measure um, it's certainly not a measure of any corporation I've ever worked for. There's been lip service given to the to the happiness of an employee, but they will also churn you out within a pretty quick flash if things aren't going well. Uh, so yeah, how do we capture that? Or if we're making all of our citizens fat and unhealthy, but we're highly profitable, is that really to the social good? And, you know, we're all going to pay for those healthcare costs eventually. We're all going to pay for those environmental costs eventually. So it's kind of the common, the common good that we're trying to, to capture here and make sure that that gets, gets concerned in there. And like I said, maybe you have two different forms of money, if you will. And in order to buy something, you have to use both forms, perhaps, can't buy a Rolls Royce unless you get to unless you get to spend some social good along with it. Don't know. But it does seem like we need some kind of balancing that the that the straight cash is king and greed is good. You know, that's a powerful engine, but we still need steering and brakes and some sense um, applied. And instead, we just seem to build bigger engines and then we act all surprised when it, you know, shoots off the end of the road. I like your idea of a social currency, and I like even more the concept of having to use it in order to engage in market transactions. You can imagine, perhaps, that some of your fees and taxes would be due in this social currency, and if you don't have enough of it, uh, then you have to purchase this currency for hard-earned greenbacks. Uh, from another corporation maybe that generated a surplus of social credit. If it sounds similar to the concept of emissions trading, then I think it's probably not a coincidence. I personally love the idea of using economic incentives to encourage uh, socially beneficial behaviors. It, it, there are a lot of ways that you could structure it and it may be that you just take your hard-earned greenbacks and buy the social currency and that the market is setting that exchange rate um, and that secondhand purchase is is much more expensive than really doing good in the in the first place right trying to come back later and say oh gosh let me undo all that horrible damage i did is hundredfold more expensive than doing some good in the in the first place how you judge that good and and all the rest of that is is an interesting question and the social good is probably going to be people who receiving the good you know evaluating how much good you did them right so that there's there's going to be a buy-in which which comes back to the to the stakeholders right does the 
Does the citizenry around your corporation get a say in what you're doing? Do the, do the actual employees get a say in what you're doing? Um, and maybe they have a certain number of dollars, points that they're accumulating that they're then able to allocate to you know, other places that have done them good. So I want to ask yeah. you, Andrew, um, you're probably familiar with the so-called business roundtable the collection of business leaders, uh, including some very famous names like Jamie Dimon from uh, JP Morgan, it, that came together to supposedly define the purpose of a corporation and to promote this kind of economy that serves everybody. So this is, I think it's a blessed initiative. Um, now, you could say various things about how audacious it is and whether it's meeting any of its goals. Although, to be fair, this is a fairly new initiative i think it's right about one this year was conscious was this conscious capitalism um i'm not familiar with that term specifically um but the idea is that they created this joint statement that affirms the critical roles that corporations play in society and talk about meeting the needs of all stakeholders so my question to you seeing this initiative is do you think that the so-called free market is maybe getting there by itself and we don't need to uh, force upon them some kind of capitalism to the though. I think that the corporations left to themselves are very likely to continue down the road they're already in and they have sufficiently captured the political system that they are unlikely to go that way. And yeah, we've got some business leaders talking about it. Uh, we certainly have Warren Buffett and Bill Gates thinking about things like that as well. Uh, I think you need a partnership, just like that's how America has done things, right? We need a public and a private partnership that there are going to be corporations who want to do the right thing, and we should let them do that. And we are going to find corporations that do not want to do the right thing, and we should help get them to see the right way. So let me challenge you on that point, because I think there is something inherently very unfair Take a look at two very different corporation from a, corporations from a social perspective. One being Shell, the energy giant, and the other being Microsoft, okay, which I happen to work for. Now, Microsoft is perceived as a very socially beneficial corporation these days, by and large, okay? And Shell is seen as this enemy of society in certain circles. But roll the tape back 30 years ago, they were viewed exactly the same, or 40 years, if you will, go back to 1970s. Microsoft existed back then, so did Shell, of course. And the question is, should Shell really be seen as this public enemy number one, or companies like Shell, given that they, they were just unlucky enough to be in that industry which today is seen through such tainted glasses, if you will, whereas tech companies, through no virtue of their own, just happen to be viewed as much better for the social good. I mean, is this really a fair way to judge corporations? I see what you're saying. And by the way, in the 1970s, you wouldn't even have noticed Microsoft. It wouldn't even have been a, you know, a spot on the tire <laughs> yeah. of the shell. And I would take IBM, I mean. So, so maybe, yeah. you know, maybe one of the factors is change over time. You know, have you been improving your score 
basically, because let's face it, in 1999, you would have judged Microsoft to be a deeply evil corporation. Um, and Shell is divesting itself of much of its oil production and I think has worked very hard to be or at least be perceived as a green energy company and moving towards the future. I believe Dutch Shell is almost completely uh, let go of all of the actual oil production. I think they're still doing natural gas, but they've moved out of the actual um, oil part of it. And, you know, obviously companies over time are going to get better and worse at what they're doing. Why did they do that? You know, somewhat it was economic, but somewhat it's social pressure. And I'm talking about a mechanism to help make that social pressure fixed, right? Let, let's let's make it so that it's moving in the direction we want it to. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and let's say because Microsoft was, you know, held up as an antitrust, you know, poster child there for a while and, you know, fell on not hard times. They were still making money hand over fist, but had to completely redo their their identity and in many ways their actuality in order to become a nicer company a better company you don't i don't think you'd have worked there under steve Ballmer. and interestingly i think um i'm not saying this is a rule of physics or anything but now under a very different leadership which is much more pro-community, pro-society, call it what you will, the company is performing a lot better on all metric, including and especially on the financial metric. Oh, absolutely. And their, their change to where the future is was, you know, needed and very timely. So one thing we can agree on is that capitalism isn't everywhere. There are some domains that we don't really live to the free market. One example is uh, the military. For the most part, we have a monopoly there. There is just one military for most countries. There isn't too much competition in terms of who provides national defense. So how do you view it? Are there sectors like the military that should be removed from the scope of capitalism and left for, say, the government to manage? Or conversely, are there certain services that the marketplace would be much uh, more effective at providing to the citizens? I think the military is always going to be a question that's going to be hard to let go of for government leaders or for anybody to really feel comfortable with. I think you could apply a lot more free market to the the provisioning side of it, right? Where do they get their bullets and, and how does that process take place? If you've done any work with the DOD, you know that it is a incredibly cumbersome and lobbyist filled process. And there are some amazing decisions being made um, that often result in, in multi-billion dollar contracts going in very suspicious directions. And we see that all the time. I don't see us suddenly, you know, asking who wants to run this aircraft carrier. I think that's a unlikely free market to have. I think a better example would be healthcare, which is in the free market now and needs to be directed a little bit better to service other stakeholders. There are a huge number of Americans who don't have good health care, who are one job away from not having good health care, uh, that this mechanism that we've developed 
sort of accidentally, if you look at the process for how we got here, and it is having terrible results with very, very expensive, poor outcomes. Uh, I wouldn't mind having great outcomes that were real cheap, which is what we would think we'd get from a free market, but we seem to be having exactly the wrong results. So I would pick that as a better example than necessarily the the military. Uh, we can ask questions about why we have such a large military. That's sort of a different discussion. But let's talk about maybe taking some other governmental services and moving them into the marketplace, or do we take some things and move them underneath the underneath the government's mm-hmm. auspices? I'm not sure if this is truly in the domain of capitalism and economics, because economics can perhaps help us figure out how to get the greatest healthcare benefit at a given rate of investment, but it's never going to be able to tell us how much we should invest or how we should raise that investment, who's going to pay for it, how that's going to get distributed. So these are really, in my view, ethical or even philosophical decisions But capitalism gives you this armory full of uh, tools that operate very well under a given set of conditions. So you said the military needs to buy a lot of uh, gear, obviously, and it has so many dependencies, so many services that it consumes, uh, so many goods that it purchases. But it can decide, and it does so, to take certain elements within it and to outsource them to the free market to essentially compete over uh, provisioning of such services. If you understand the strengths and weaknesses of the free market system, you can leverage it very, very effectively to get an optimal ratio between inputs and outputs, basically costs and and quality, if you will. Um, And I think Obamacare tried to to employ the, the very same thinking into healthcare. And I think for the most part, it did a pretty good job in the creation of these marketplaces. I'm not sure why these marketplaces necessarily had to be confined at the state level, but but these are specifics. Uh, at a conceptual level, I think the idea of this marketplace worked very well because we all know that competition drives down prices and drives up quality and service. I think that Obamacare was as good as they could get given the, the time and the you know, pre-existing conditions, if you will. Um, but obviously there were a lot of trade-offs that they were making to try to get that thing through. And it was a huge number of pages. I want to say 18, 20,000 pages of document that as far as I could tell, no one actually read that, you know, vast chunks of it were just sort of thrown in there along the way. Cause they had lots of problems after they, uh, after they passed it. I, I want to ask you a, a harder question. Is healthcare a basic human right? Uh, this is an ethical question. Like I said, anything to do with how much healthcare should you provide uh, is really a philosophical question. I believe that I don't like the term basic human right, okay? Because once you say that something is a basic human right, you've basically taken it out of the negotiable space. If something is a basic human right, then there is no limit to how much of that you so called Oh, people. So no, it's not a basic human right, but I do think we should provide healthcare to some extent to everybody, no matter what. Now, the extent of healthcare, should you be eligible for plastic surgery 
is not the same as the extent of should you be eligible for emergency care if you were hit by a car. These are very different things. And I think as societies grow wealthier and as we find more effective and efficient ways to provide good healthcare at a low cost, we can expand this basket of healthcare services. But I think a basic basket of services should be provided by every industrialized nation that is something I would love to see, but I would not call it a basic human right. But right in the Constitution, sorry, Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is an inalienable, sorry, an unalienable human right, right in the Declaration of Independence. And it's pretty hard to have life if you don't have health care. So is a liver transplant, Andrew, is that a basic human right? Yeah, I'm not arguing for unlimited, you know, all you can eat or that, that we should give everybody free. Well, for some people, a liver transplant is equivalent to exactly. life. The real question is, should somebody be making a buck off that liver, liver transplant? That, I believe, is a, is a definitive yes, because if nobody is going to make profit, then there will not be any livers moving around to be transplanted. This is the lubrication that ensures that people will be able to get a transplant to begin with. And yet, if you were a Dutch citizen, you'd be getting a liver transplant. Not for free. Society would be paying for that. And whoever transplants that liver will be making a profit, right? It's a good question. Who's making the profit and how much? We, we know that in the United States, a lot of our healthcare cost is getting sucked up by hospital administrators, by groups of doctors who have combined, by pharmaceutical companies, by insurance companies. And it, there's no doubt that I could, if I wanted my liver transplanted, go to another country, pay cash, and have less than my deductible is under my insurance program and have a better outcome, right? I mean, I have, I have a friend who had to have this done and they went, I want to say to Belgium and it was like $14,000 and it wasn't a full transplant. They were doing some mess to their liver, but it was like $180,000 in the US and you know, yeah, you can get 30% off because you have insurance and they flew to Belgium, had it done, first class hospital, Everything done all in, I think fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars, and then he had to pay, you know, airfare and hang out in in Belgium for a while, which some people would consider a real sacrifice, but not bad, all things considered. Mm -hmm. I agree. We have a healthcare system that is very inefficient. In fact, uh, one of the few consensuses that we have across the political spectrum in America is that we have a broken healthcare system. If you put aside who gets this these services for free or what the basket of treatments covers and what it doesn't cover, the net net is that close to 20% of our GDP goes to healthcare, which is an enormous amount, but our life expectancy is below the OECD median. I think it's lower than Costa Rica, it's lower than Greece. So this tells you a lot about that inefficiency. Uh, but one thing that you mentioned about the doctors, I think, uh, really flies in the face of your stakeholder argument. Much of the inefficiency is really the result of employees and providers in the system setting up rules and regulations and certifications that tilt the balance of power 
and the balance of money in their favor. Uh, they've built this enormous regulatory moat uh, around them, and this guarantees that they will always be in higher demand uh, and lower supply than what's really needed. And it's an example of an industry that's been taken over by some of the most powerful employees and the opposite of what you would call true competition or a market that's open for disruption or open to innovation. So if this is that's capitalism 2.0, then I think we need to go back to 1.0. Right, but that's true of any monopoly, right? I mean, whether it's a monopoly of all the hairdressers who've decided that you have to get a certain licensing in order to be a hairdresser, or if it's, you know... Sorry, only Facebook has your data and they're not letting go of it. We're clearly seeing a move towards these, if you will, rent controlling operations trying to set up. And that's the antithesis of what we want a free market to do. But having only one provider is exactly that, a crippled free market. And that we needed, you know, regulatory action from the government to keep those people let's take the the petroleum business or the steel business they went right towards monopoly a pretty quick clip and they needed to be dragged back in some cases with some pretty big legal actions to get them either broken up or to to get them to act fairly and what's happened in my opinion is that the political system has been kidnapped by these monopoly you know groups that want this control so in some ways we not just need capitalism 2.0 but we're going to need to move towards democracy 2.0 where we get it back in balance so that these other groups have some voice to it and i know you're going to ask me is the economic model the same as a political and ethical system and the answer is no but we need something that's going to get us some balance of forces because it's it's skewing badly in a, in a really not very effective direction. And I know you and I disagree on the effect of inequality, but it, to me, there are more and more people with big buckets of money and more and more poor people in this country. And I understand they're richer than they were as serfs in the Middle Ages but they're not as rich as they were in 1970. Sorry, they're just not. Andrew, I'm in agreement that we have poverty in this country, but what you may not know is that in terms of the share of the population living in poverty, it's probably as low as it has ever been. It's lower than it was in the 1970s. It's only about... 12% of the population. Now, granted, we're looking at some 40 million people living in poverty, but I completely denounce the serfdom metaphor because the U.S. has a very large middle class to begin with because nobody, including the poorest of the poor, is hungry. Uh, we have a serious obesity problem, but we certainly don't have any hunger problem. And because Americans of all classes have access to the world's body of knowledge in their pocket and access to resources that even kings and rulers of 30 years ago could have only... But not everybody about. has internet access. Not everybody even today has a library anymore. We used to have a big program to provide public libraries, and much of that has been pulled back. So it's great if you're, like we are, wealthy, sitting here with high-speed internet, 
recording our podcasts with, you know, the whole world at our fingertips. Absolutely. That's not the same for every American. Should it be? I think that's really the question we're asking is what's, how many, how many poor downtrodden people in our population is an acceptable number? Zero is an acceptable number, I would say. But I think we've always had poverty and we always will have poverty. And the idea is rather than just focus on the bottom is how can you lift everybody? And we know that if you just focus on the bottom, the way that Chavez did in Venezuela, you end up with a crippled country. Okay. And so how do you achieve that? Because to me, we have not been moving in that direction, right? And I don't, you know, I don't see any number that says for the last 30 years, we're moving in that direction. So we got more, we got more channels on TV. It's true that some groups have been doing much better than others. I'm not going to disagree with that. But at the same time, it's also become a national pastime to portray growth as something that belongs to a privileged few. And then to claim that the American middle class has been languishing. And there are two major flaws with this line of argument. Uh, first, and factually, in the last 50 years since 1970, household income, if you adjust it to inflation, did go up for basically all Americans. So at the top 20%, it doubled. If you go to the next 20%, the second quintile, then it went up by about 30%. And even at, for the bottom 20%, it notched up by a bit, mostly, by the way, in the last five years. This is not spectacular growth across the board, absolutely not. And it's especially noticeable the higher up that you look. But in America, there is no socioeconomic group that earns less today than it did in the past. So I can't accept the different and various platitudes that things were measurably better in the 1990s or the 70s or the 50s because they weren't. And of course, uh, we now have coronavirus, and this is especially devastating to low-income families. So we need to be smart about maintaining this progress and making sure that we don't uh, backslide. Uh, the second flaw is that it's very misleading to look at certain classes over time, longitudinally, and if there wasn't enough growth, then to claim that people are stuck. Um, when I started my adult life, in the beginning, I was classified in the bottom quintile, maybe even in the bottom 1%. I was fresh out of the military and I was earning minimum wage in the service industry. And two years later, I was in the top quintile. Now, this is called social mobility. Where you start isn't necessarily where you need to end. So through education and hard work and initiative, uh, we can rise from rags to riches. So I can't buy into that narrative that you are your socioeconomic class. If you have an environment with good social mobility, then people's economic status can rise and fall based on their decisions. They're not limited by the statistics of the income band into which they are born. Um, so social mobility, I think that's the key word. That's essentially the odds of individuals to rise up in income throughout their life. And in America, it's not at all bad. 
It should be made a lot better. That should be the focus. Uh, but think of it this way. Let's say we gave everybody a 50% salary increase. Now, the poor, having enjoyed that 50% salary increase, can purchase more, but they will keep seeing their neighbors living much better off because they, their neighbors would also get that 50% increase. And in fact, we would gain nothing from that because countless studies have shown that people's satisfaction and people's sense of worth is relative to others. Especially now in this day and age, it's relative to what they see on social media. So I'd love to see a plan for much greater social mobility. Something that not only puts social values on a pedestal, but something that would lay out policies, proven policies, for accelerating uh, and for improving the opportunities of individuals. We should think of people as people as opposed to groups. Um, I'd love to see motivated people have access to good opportunities, not just 20-year-olds of the world, although, although these people are key to this, but also 50-year-olds that maybe permanently lost their job during this pandemic. So I hear those slogans. I think they're inspiring, but I've yet to see a good plan that describes how we can get there. Uh, a plan will definitely require money, but allocating X trillions of dollars is not a plan. It's just another recipe for wasting society's resources. I agree. And and especially to how to go from as is to be, right? I mean, that, that, that change is hard. And that's kind of why I was trying in, in my limited way to describe a economic way to, to tag that and let capitalism and the free market work towards that. Right. If we had a if we had a way of measuring that happiness index and moving us all towards that, like I said, I don't I think there are some people who enjoy looking down on the poor. Right. That, that, ooh, that's a certain thrill. But for the most part, I think everybody would like everybody else to be well cared for. Why not? Right. We know we don't want to look at people laying on the sidewalk as you drive through downtown LA or downtown Seattle. It's not a pleasant, not a pleasant thing. It's a terrible thing for sure. Uh, that said, none of us is in a position to tell other people how to go about living their own lives. Uh, it never works. We might think that everyone's going to be better off going to college, going to work, having a family, abstaining from dangerous substances, you name it. But there are tens of millions of people in the United States who have a very different idea about their own lives. Not everybody wants to take a mortgage and own a home and have two and a half kids and a Toyota RAV4 and a dog. We need to acknowledge that many people live what we call a life of poverty, many out of choice, and some people out of necessity, but it's a very complicated picture and not all of them can either be helped or want to be helped. And well, guess what? Even Sweden and Switzerland have homeless people, many more than we, we might think. <laughs> okay, so what are, we, what are we agreeing on and what are we disagreeing on here? Well, I think there are several things we agree on. 
we agree that the system feels unjust to more and more people, and whether or not that's backed by facts is a different matter. We agree that the American healthcare system is broken and in need of reform. Uh, too many people have low or no coverage, and many have to seek treatment abroad if they even have that option. We also agree that maximizing shareholder value can be a very problematic long-term approach for society, and still most executives are obsessed with it. And we agree that government needs to play a bigger role in setting rules that are going to favor everyone with more emphasis on future generations. And that's very difficult to do with when uh, money is synonymous with uh, political power. I, I, think, I think that's a good statement of where we, uh, where we agree. Where we disagree seems to be in mechanism on how to get there. Mm -hmm. And both because I haven't defined it perfectly so that you could agree with it, because I don't think I'm, I'm the right person to necessarily say, here it is, you know, bum, bum, bum. And nor have I seen anyone else who said this is the exact um, mechanism by which we can It's hard to do that. But there. saying, you know, we'll spend $3 trillion is not the solution. I agree. I don't think it's a matter of, okay, let's just write this check. Like I said, in fact, that's the opposite of what I want us to do. I want to change the mechanism so that we're working towards these goals using what we know works. And we know that just big handouts didn't work. Um, now, spending money on infrastructure that causes jobs and that recirculates the money, I think that's that is a good thing that we haven't been doing for the last 30, 40 years, um, that we have the worst airports now in the, in the free world is a result of us really squeezing the profit nickel as hard as we can rather than doing some longer term planning. So I, and maybe we need to do this as a second go around, but what would be a good mechanism? How would we put these, larger scale questions into an economic pie. And, and I think longer term money. So maybe it's a, a short term profit, a long term social good uh, and let them be taxed differently is a is a way to think about it. Let's let's go around on that in a future in a future podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to come back to this topic. Absolutely. There is so much more about it that we've barely scratched, and it was insightful. I, I hear you on many of these issues, more than I did before, and I hope you feel the same way. Yeah, it's it's always fun, and I think this one we, we both kind of slid a little bit. Uh, that was a question I was going to ask you here at the very end is, what have you changed your mind on in the last year? <laughs> well, this is uh, straight out of left field. What have I changed my mind? Well, one thing I certainly changed my mind about is the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. I haven't used it and I certainly didn't examine it in any great depth before. So I had a slightly tainted view about it like so many people do. But it was not based on knowledge and it wasn't based on my true understanding. So recently I've analyzed it in a more careful way. And there are many elements in it that I think are really good. And honestly, I would love to see them employed in any future healthcare system. So maybe just to name a couple, uh, one is the wide risk pools. 
essentially spreading the costs between people with pre-existing conditions as well as the young and the healthy. Um, it requires the individual mandate or some kind of that, and I'm a supporter of that. So I think an individual mandate where everyone should be required to have some kind of basic health insurance, that's a good thing because otherwise you're going to force society to pay for you when you show up at that ER. Uh, I also like the insurance exchanges or marketplaces which create competition. And there are many other wonderful economic principles at play there. So, yeah, Andrew, what, what's the one thing you changed your mind about this past year? So my answer to the question is very different, and, and I can't say it relates to this podcast, but I, um, I have tried to change my mind that the maintenance on my hobbies should be as fun as the actual hobby. So in, in this particular case, I'm talking about mountain biking, and I've never liked working on the mountain bike. It's always been like, well, I guess I have to do this or it's not working. And I'm now trying to make that a zen in the art of a motorcycle maintenance moment where it's a spiritual practice of its own in that I am going to have to do the maintenance and I should engage in it. And I'm using this as a life lesson really across the board that there are many things that you have to maintain in order to have the bigger result that you want and that you need to make that enjoyable or as pleasurable an event as the actual doing of the of the overall. Does that, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yes, we all enjoy the fun, but not always the investment that's so integral to it. I guess, Andrew, when we work on that massive rebuilding our infrastructure plan, I might not recommend you as the maintenance czar. <laughs> but otherwise, as always, it was a real delight. Always a pleasure, Eden. And I will see you on the other side.